We're in 1 Peter, you know that. If you were here last week, we started this uh, letter from the Apostle Peter. Um, And we began looking at the man Peter last week. And as you may recall, uh, he is one who there are a lot of jokes made about, actually, because of all his vacillating and saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things. And uh, he was one who would put his foot in his mouth, as we talked about last week. A lot of things said about Peter. Peter failed miserably. Uh, He said, I will never leave you. And he did. He disobeyed, or, or excuse me, denied Christ three times, eventually restored. But understanding just that, man, good intentions, good intentions in your own strength. Just don't do it. They just don't do it. And Peter was restored by the Lord Jesus, told to feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And that's what he's doing in First, Tem- First Peter to, the, to these scattered people who were facing persecution. It had to be exciting for them to get this letter. I think about that. I think, wow, we got a letter from Peter. I mean, we've got some words from God. He's an apostle. Not just apostle in the non-technical sense, but apostle in the technical sense, meaning he is one who is sent by God, chosen by God. One of the 12 spent time with Christ, intimate time with Christ, was in that inner circle, a leader of the other apostles, a leader of the mother church in Jerusalem, one who saw the resurrected Christ. We're going to let a letter from Peter. You know, Paul is intimidating, Paul always seems to say the right things, do things the right way. But this is Peter. He's the kind of guy you can just go up to, put your arm on his shoulder and say, man, I get it. I fail all the time and I need God's grace every single day. Peter understood the need for grace. This epistle is just all about grace, all about grace, because he needed it so badly and so desperately and we need it. And this letter is getting passed around and everybody, I'm sure, was excited. Words from God in our midst. That's what an apostle was, one who spoke for God. Inspired uh, words, inspired writings. He only wrote like First and Second Peter that we have recorded. He may have written other things, but as far as into the canon of Scripture, First and Second Peter had great influence in the Gospel of Mark. So this is Peter writing this letter to Jew and Gentile believers. Some people have said this is just to Jewish believers, but I think you can make a strong case, and we'll see that as we go through this. It's Jew and Gentile, not just Jewish believers. 1 Peter 5, 12, you flip over there, he tells you why he wrote it, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is why I'm writing this to you. I'm writing this to you to exhort you and to give testimony that this is the grace of God and you need to stand firm in it. There will always be the temptation to vacillate like I did. There will always be the temptation to fall away like I did. But you stand firm. You stand firm. And remember, they're going through time of persecution. I told you last time. They're going through, it's not what it's going to be, but it's starting to intensify. It's going to get really bad in about a decade from the date of this. But it's starting to get pretty bad. 
And they're under persecution. They're becoming marginalized. They're becoming, some are losing their property. Some are experiencing even death. So that's what they're living in the midst of. And there's, there's the temptation to think that maybe there's something wrong with us. Maybe there's something lacking in our salvation. Maybe it's just not complete. I know I fail and I keep on messing up. Maybe, maybe God has abandoned me and God has abandoned us. When things get tough like that, that would certainly be a temptation to think like that. Secondly, maybe God isn't concerned about our suffering. Maybe we're not on God's radar. Maybe the gospel is not about the daily struggles we go through. Maybe it's just for the big picture, ultimate salvation, but not to the daily trials that we are facing. Maybe the gospel isn't for that. These present afflictions. And maybe that's just not on God's radar, as I, one commentator said. And so there is uncertainty, and they are shaken, and they need to be told to stand firm. Christians are left here for one thing, folks. One reason why Jesus left us here. Look at verse two, chapter 2, verse 9. We are left here for a time to do something. And it's like this. We are... We are strangers living in a foreign place. We feel that, don't we? We feel that. And with every moral low that our society goes to, we look at it and we say, I just don't belong here. I just don't think like this. I just don't think this way. I mean, this place is becoming more and more foreign to me all the time. This place is becoming, I'm feeling more and more like an alien all the time. But he left us here for this reason, so that you, verse 9 of chapter 2, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's great commission language. We are here for that purpose, to make known the excellencies of God. You know what? The more we proclaim that, the persecution intensifies, does it not? But that is why we're here. I heard Jerry Ragg say this. I thought it was really good. He says, we don't bury our heads in the sand. We don't move into a commune. We are not to be sinfully fearful and contemplating end times. We don't store up food. We don't isolate ourselves. We bring the good news to the world. Yeah, that's what this is about. Sure, it's rough and sure, it's difficult. And sure, I'm feeling more and more alienated, isolated from the world that I'm in and I'm not of. But I need Peter's encouragement and exhortation because that's what he does in this short letter. He started in verse 1. If you look, look at chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. He starts out by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, apostle in the technical sense. He was one of the 12. He was one of the foundations of the church. His teaching was the foundation of the church. 
There are no more apostles of that nature anywhere. Sure, there are people who are sent ones, yes, but not in the technical sense of being one of the 12. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you always put your name at the beginning of a letter in that culture. We always had at the end, you know, sincerely Rod at the end or whatever you want to say at the end. They start out, this is who sent the letter, Peter. And the recipients are listed there as well. He says, to those who reside as aliens. You could could use the word foreigner for the word alien there. Uh, And it's not that they're foreigners as much as they feel like they're foreigners. (laughs) They're strangers in their own country. He says, as aliens, as foreigners. And they would have said, yeah, Peter, you got it right. That's exactly how I feel. You understand, we are in this place, but we are not of it. We feel like aliens. And when you're an alien in a place, you know the food, the customs, the laws, they're all foreign to you. You're there there in body, but you don't feel like you belong there. This is not my home. This is not my home. They were that little chorus that goes, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. They were singing that a lot. The word scattered is also mentioned there. This is a, a different word. You have aliens. He says aliens and who arrived as, excuse me, aliens scattered throughout and gives the region, but the word scattered is an interesting word. It's uh, from the word diaspora. It's the word that was used of the diaspora, the dispersion when the, the Jews were f- forced to leave in, in, in Judea and went into other parts. They lived among the Gentiles, the scattered ones. They were scattered, uh, that dispersion. The, the, the article, the, is not used there, so this isn't talking to just Jews. This is just talking to some people who are scattered in the world. Jew and Gentile, scattered. They're scattered ones. And so both Jews and Gentiles who are scattered, and there are churches he's talking to here, though the specific church isn't mentioned like the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica. It's to all of these believers scattered, all of these aliens, all of these foreigners in that that land who are scattered, those people who are being made to feel like aliens in their lands. Some were forced, no doubt, to leave their homes and find a place where it was safe to reside. I'm not saying that's not part of this word, but he's generally writing to people who are part of a churches in a region, living among unbelievers, and they feel like they're aliens in that land. It's like the scattered means like seed is thrown out and, and you're placed somewhere. That's where you've been placed. So he starts out by just describing the earthly status of these believers. This is what you are. In fact, you could take that word chosen and you could put that before alien. You are chosen aliens scattered. You could put it there. I don't think that changes the meaning of anything in these two verses we're going to look at this morning. But, but the point is, that's their status. You're chosen aliens scattered. And so he identifies 
their status. Your living sojourners would be another word. Living in an alien land. You're far from your homeland. And then Peter goes and tells the region, you see that in verse 1 as well, where the letter was traveling to. It was going to all of these places, kind of in a circle uh, throughout this region. Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor would be the region we're talking about. uh, Those cities are listed. Pontus, the far north. Galatia, uh, a place where Paul traveled, the book of Galatians. That's a region, not a city. It's a region. Um, Cappadocia located in the eastern portion of Asia Minor. There were some Jews who had gone to Jerusalem at Pentecost and became believers uh, after the resurrection of Christ. And they came back to Cappadocia, and they were the missionaries to Cappadocia. You see, in uh, it mentions Asia. That would be most of Western Asia and Bithynia, which would be the region around, along the Black Sea, if you know your geography. So Peter is talking to a lot of people here, a lot of people in this letter, a lot of people who are, whose status is aliens scattered around, people who are part of the Roman Empire but don't feel like they're part of the Roman Empire because they're strangers, they're just passing through, sojourners. And they need this letter, they need this letter because they need encouragement, they don't feel like they belong anywhere. And what do we do about it? How do we live? This is the question. How then shall we live? How do we live in a hostile world? And that's very much the question we are beginning to ask a lot. How do we live in a hostile world? A world that is hostile to Christianity, to our message, to our God, to our Lord. What do you say to them? What do you say to them? And that's what happens next. They're, they're mocked and marginalized and they don't feel like they belong. What do you say to them? Verse 1, he starts out by saying, at the end, after he lists all those geographical areas, he says, who are chosen? And then he goes into, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you were to ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? They would start to, if you ask 10 people, you probably get, a lot of times you get 10 different answers. You know that? But sometimes you're going to hear things like a Christian is somebody that doesn't do certain things. Or a Christian is somebody that does do certain things. Or a Christian is somebody that's just a good person. Or it's a person that uses his Sunday mornings to go to church or carries a Bible or reads a Bible. He tries to do good things. Those are some of the common things you hear about a Christian. I love what Peter's doing here. He said, no, 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 no. You are chosen. God chose you. I think this is very comforting. I think this is very comforting. A very comforting doctrine. When you don't feel like you belong in the world, tell them, hey, you got a home because God chose you. You may not feel like you got a home here, but because you're the chosen of God, you got a home better than this place. Better than this place. You may have to temporarily be here, but there's going to be a future in gathering in that new home. 
You might be an outsider in the kingdom of the world, but you're an insider in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying to them. For our citizenship, Philippians 3.20 says, is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an alien in this world, but my citizenship is in heaven. If you're a Christian, that is true about you this morning. Your citizenship is in heaven. This is not home. And it's feeling less and less like that all the time that this place is home. The word chosen has caused a lot of distress to a lot of people throughout church history. Uh, it, divide, it can stir up debates really quick. It's, it's a tough doctrine. I don't doubt that. I know it is. It was, I didn't believe it for the first years of my Christian life. I was free will. God chose me because I chose him first. It's all about what I did, and God responded to that. That's not what this word means. This means he loved me. He first loved me. I didn't first love him. This word means I didn't respond to him. He came and got me. Excuse me. He didn't respond to something I did. He came and got me. It all was initiated by God. You see, it's a, use, it's a word that's used a lot with the Israelites, and most Christians do not have a problem with saying God chose Israel. Well, do you realize there were a lot of other nations around? The Hittites and the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Mosquitoites and all the Bites. I mean, they were all, they were all out there. God did not choose them. God chose Israel, not because they were the greatest. There was nothing special about them. God in his sovereignty chose them. Moses told them this in Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, God chose you. And so now Peter is using this term for these scattered believers Jew and Gentile, he is saying, you were chosen by God. And it's, a, it's a, what we call a verbal adjective, and it's passive, meaning it was the believer is the object of the electing action of God. That's important. This is what Hebrews says. This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says God is the author of our salvation. Think about that statement. God is the author of our salvation, meaning he wrote the first sentence. I am not the author of my salvation. You are not the author of your salvation. This has got to be encouraging news to these believers in Asia Minor. As he is telling them that this is who you are. Let's go back to who you are. You were chosen by God. He wrote the first sentence in your salvation. He brought you to himself. God is the one that takes the first step, folks. He makes the first move. You know why? Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can read that in Ephesians 2.1. Dead people don't respond. Dead people can't respond. 
I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And you see, I think a lot of people have more problem with the depravity of man and the inability of man, the total inability of man. They have more of a problem with that than they do with the doctrine of election. Because you must understand the total depravity and inability of man to understand the need for the doctrine of election. I cannot respond, I will not respond to the God of the Bible. I'll make up another God real quick, but it will not be this God. Something must overpower me. Something must draw me. Something must open my blind eyes to see that truth and treasure that truth. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. To the church at Thessalonica, Paul writes these words, or Luke writes these words. Always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Chose you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Jesus taught this truth. He said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. John 13, 18, I know the ones I have chosen. Jesus is speaking that. In the upper room, he told his disciples this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Luke says it this way, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, as many who has been appointed to eternal life believed. The the writer of scriptures don't answer all your questions about this because I know this is not an easy doctrine for any of us, but they, they don't try to harmonize it with my, they don't try to harmonize it with the response I made years ago when I became a Christian. They don't try to harmonize it. It, it looks like I made the decision. I get that. And they don't try to harmonize the fact that I must believe with God chooses. They don't try to harmonize it at all. They let both truths stand. Both truths stand. The fact that I, he chose and I must believe. They both stand. But I cannot just believe the manward side. I must believe the Godward side. The manward side I can see. I got a testimony to stand up here and give you the manward side. But that Godward side, I cannot see. I just know the Bible says it. It's revealed in Scripture, and that's why I believe it. It's God who initiates salvation. He chose us in eternity past. That's called divine election. We chose God at a moment in time. That's human will acting in faith on God's initiating work of grace. This is so comforting. I, I, don't have to wor- I don't have to worry about if my, the quality of my faith all the time. I just believed and, and I trusted and, and it's because he chose me. I'm secure in him. It's not something I mustered up in myself. And, but me believing, me believing in that initiating work of God is necessary for salvation. When Paul and Silas were in the jail, and you remember the place started falling apart as they were singing songs, and, and, uh, and this jailer had been listening to Paul, and, 
and Silas as they were singing in prison. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say, well, listen, if you're asking that question, you are obviously elect, therefore don't worry about it. He didn't say that. He did not say that. He said in Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He, didn't, he did not say believe in the Lord Jesus because you've already been saved. He didn't. But the point is, both are necessary. That's all I'm trying to say. Turn to Romans 8 just for a moment. Let me just show you this. Romans 8, 29 and 30. I'll tell you what, just hold that verse for a moment. Hold that page for a moment. I'll come back to it in a second. I just had this extra thought and I wasn't sure where I was going to plug it in. And this is not where I want to plug it in. So we'll come back. Um, just don't lose it. We'll come back to it. And I'm just saying this because he calls them the chosen. He says, you're chosen, you're chosen. Uh, he doesn't say that to stir up a debate among them. He says, you're chosen. Um, and he's saying, in the spite of all your chaos, you're chosen for that chaos. You're chosen. You're chosen to be an alien, and you're chosen to at times feel like an alien. You're chosen. God knows that. That's why in the original, the word chosen comes before alien, actually. Chosen, alien, scattered. You're chosen, aliens. You're chosen, sojourners. You're, so, you're chosen for this world not to be your home. It had to be encouraging. God hadn't, for, God hadn't forgotten us. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. And so God is in control of our chaos. He chose us for this chaos. He chose us for the chaos. He has not lost track of us. We are on his radar. He does care about us. He does love us because he chose us. He chose us. God, they thought God was finished with them. They could have easily thought that, but God is not finished with them. You were chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. He made this plan. It was, he planned it out. He says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, that sort of connects to the word chosen. That's why most translators have put the word chosen at the end of the verse. Well, in the Greek, it's a little earlier, but the whole verse refers to this. But it's chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You see that in verse 2. There are three prepositional phrases here, and they all have to do with the Trinity, which is interesting. So let me expand on this just a little bit. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so God foreknew those he loved. God knew you before. God knew your situation before. But this word is more than that. This word is not just knowing about something before it happens. The omniscience of God, he knows everything. This word, it means more than that in the scripture. It carries more than mental awareness about something. It has a deep intimate love. God, for God to foreknow us is for God to forelove us. That's the point of the word foreknowledge. He foreloved us. First John 4.10, if, 
in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. He loved us and then, and then he sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. He set his love on us in eternity past and sent his son to be the satisfaction payment for our sins. But he loved us. He set his love on us. This is true of believers. I would not say this is a statement that I would make to unbelievers, though he loves in a general sense. He loves all his creation and all creatures, but this is a love, a foreknowledge, foreplanned, foreplanned. We were foreplanned, foreloved, foreknown by God. That's comforting. It takes it out of the picture of what is a Christian? Oh, he doesn't do this or he does do this, da 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 da. No, a Christian is one who was foreknown by God. He knew my name, he knew about me, and he loved me in eternity past. And at some point, I came and made a response to his initiating me to come to salvation. It's kind of. Some people want to say that when you talk about foreknowledge you're talking about God elects those who he knows are going to respond to him God foreknows what people are going to do in the future and it's those people who are going to believe in him that he elects that is not this word that is not this word that makes God a responder God is not a responder I'm a responder God's not a responder he doesn't sit around on the edge of heaven hoping somebody believes this message. No. He chose. He chose. I will build my church. I will do it. Not all your nice, fancy programs. I don't need them to build my church. I will build my church. I don't need the right conditions to build my church. I don't need a... a I don't need a government that uh, uh, likes Christians to build my church. I don't need a society that likes Christianity to build my church. I can build my church no matter what the obstacles are. God doesn't respond to us. Peter says this in, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2. Peter, in Acts chapter 2 maybe, and he says it was by the predetermined plan of God. Christ's <clears throat> predetermined plan of God. Talking about Christ, he his, by his foreknowledge, he knew what was going to happen. It was a predetermined plan that it would happen, that Christ would die. The word foreknowledge has to do with the predetermined plan of God. That's a great reminder to these suffering believers that God knows. You're on, hey, you're on his radar. You're on his radar. He called you to this. He chose you for this. Notice what it says about Jesus in verse 20 of chapter 1. You're probably in Romans, aren't you? Look at, tell you what, in 1 Peter chapter 1, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That's talking about Jesus. Let me read it again. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That word foreknowledge does not mean, oh, God knew what this guy Jesus was going to do, therefore he made him the savior of the world. 
No. God planned it. Foreknowledge means he planned it. He set his love on Christ. He planned it, and it came along just as he planned it. The world is not falling apart, folks. The world is falling into place. That's what he's trying to say. It's falling into place. Romans 8, look at Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, talking about believers here, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he be the firstborn among many brethren. See that? Foreknew, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those, verse 30, whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. See, it's a package deal. If you're foreknown, you will one day be glorified. Three other, four other links in that chain happen in between. Justification, calling, sanctification, all of these things happen in between. But it's a chain that's not broken because God, it's God's chain of salvation. I foreknew you, and one day I will glorify you. In between there, I will call you, I will justify you. One day, I will glorify you. You're sitting here today, and you're thinking, that just does not sound fair. Look over at Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault with people? For who resists his will? That's, if, if, you're ask, if you're sitting there asking that question, I have preached this doctrine correctly to you. You, you follow me? If you're sitting there thinking that just does not seem fair, why would God find fault with anybody if he's the one that's choosing? If you're thinking that right now, then you have just heard the doctrine of election explained to you correctly because that's what the question that Paul anticipates people are going to have. That is an anticipated question on your part and my part because I've asked the same question. But that is an anticipated question to this doctrine from the mind of man. It just doesn't seem fair. Paul just simply writes, on the contrary, who are you, a man to answer back to God? I don't know the answer. I don't try to reconcile them. We just preach them. God chooses. You must believe. And the way you know that you're chosen is you believe. And it's a wonderful, wonderful doctrine that I'm certain brought great encouragement to these believers. And that's where you go. Well, you always fall back on the gospel, don't you? Just go back to what you know. When things are crazy and you can't understand, just go back to what you know. I belong to God. I feel alone, but I'm not alone. I feel abandoned, but I'm not abandoned. If he chose me, if, if, if I'm part of this big picture, if I'm part of this incredible link of God initiated, God holding this whole thing together, I can't lose. That's why we teach the perseverance of the saints. God perseveres you. God did it, and God will give you the ability to hold on to him. That's another whole doctrine. We don't have time to do that this morning, but that's another whole doctrine. Look also in verse... Uh, Verse 2, this is another prepositional phrase. I told, you, I told you that to encourage these believers, what he does is he, he's just taking them back to the Godhead. Just find refuge in God. 
God the Father chose you according to his foreknowledge. Now we say the sanctifying work of the Spirit, present tense. This is uh, the, the Spirit is working in our lives all the time. The Spirit is in the process of making us, this present tense, like I said, making us, making us to live holy and separate lives. And these separate lives go against the world. But it's a work that he continually does. He will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. If you wonder what God is doing in your life right now as a Christian, he is using all things, his word, other believers, your trials, your sufferings. He's using all of that. The spirit of God is using all of that to conform you to the image of his son. It's the sanctifying work of the spirit to make you more like Jesus. And the world does not like, you to li- like for you to like Jesus or to look like Jesus. Those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. It's the Holy Spirit that indwells all of us as believers. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not even a Christian. You're not even a Christian. The Christian life from beginning to end is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is at work always at work. Howard Hendricks used to say, talking about churches, he says, if the Holy Spirit abandoned some churches, how long do you think it would be before they noticed he was gone? Think about that. And they start realizing, we've just been doing this in our own strength. And that, that can be you as a believer, me as a believer. If the Holy Spirit abandoned, how long would it be before I realized that he was gone. I say that to say this, not because I believe he can abandon you, I'm just simply saying too many times we realize we've just been doing our own strength. Too many churches do it in their own strength. Too many Christians do it in their own strength. They don't rely on the Holy Spirit. They don't rely on this resource that God has given to them. I got, in our neighborhood we get these power outages periodically. It seems like a lot for a while there. It's gotten a little better, but every time the wind would blow, you know, none of the appliances would work. You know, you got appliances in your house. They're nice appliances, and you know, they're great appliances, but those appliances are worthless if you have a power outage. They're no more value than the box they came in when there's a power outage. They're useless. And that's how we are when we are not relying on God's Spirit to do it through us. As a church, we can become practical atheist talk about God but in practice we live like he does not exist you can do that in your life I do that in my life just run around on my own steam not depending on the spirit not depending on what he says in his word and walking in obedience to that that's walking in the spirit and so Hey, God is working in you, all you scattered aliens. God's working in you. And he wants, he's working in you to keep you separated from the world. You know that? He does not want your life to look like the world. He does not want you to buy into the values of the world or to think like the world or do the things the world does. And therefore, you're going to be and feel very alone at times. That just goes with being chosen. <laughs> and thirdly, you see in this verse, according 
to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Notice to obey Jesus Christ. Third, third person, not the third person, second person of the Trinity, but the third one mentioned. The whole Godhead is mentioned here to obey Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. That's why we were saved. We were saved for obedience. It's pretty simple. We were not saved to just live how we want to live. We were saved to obedience. Saved to obedience. Unbelievers don't want to hear what Christ has to say. I do and you do. I don't always like it. I don't always like to be rebuked by the scriptures. I don't always like to be confronted by the truth. I don't like those things. My flesh does not like those things. But the reality is I was saved to I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what, 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 what's Peter doing? He's just got, taking him back to, this is who you are, folks. This is who you are. No wonder you feel like an alien. No wonder you feel like a sojourner. No wonder you feel like this earth is not your home. Because you're different. You're different. You are on God's radar. He knows what's going on. He expected this to happen. Jesus told you this would happen. That word sprinkled by his blood, I don't think, though I believe and know we are all saved by the blood of Jesus, I think if you go back to Deuteronomy, I think it is Deuteronomy chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 24, when the people of Israel heard the law of God, heard the law of God, they said, it is our intention to obey it. No, they didn't say it that way. They said, we're going to obey it. We're going to obey it. And they were sprinkled with blood. The priests were sprinkled with blood. I don't think we're talking salvation when we use that term in this verse. I think we use, it's used in other places certainly for salvation because we are saved by the blood of Christ. I think this is just a sealing of the covenant. That's all he's saying. Our intention is to be obedient. We are saved to good works. We are saved to obedience to Christ. We are not saved to live for ourselves. We are saved to be delivered from ourselves. We are saved to walk with him. We are his workmanship. So Peter has just given them a truckload of truth, hasn't he? Just, hey, just think about this. Just think about this, folks. He's saying to you in first century Rome and to us sitting here in Tallahassee in 21st century, just think about these things. Just think about these things. See, if I believed I could, it was all up to me, and I believe I'm the one that somehow made my salvation happen, I'd always be scared I was going to lose it. And I guarantee you, I could lose it. I could really lose my salvation. Just any day of the week, you pick it, I could lose it. But when God's holding on to me, continually letting me walk in grace and forgiving me continually by the Holy Spirit, oh man. Those people had to feel like, God, is it possible that we aren't saved anymore? Is it possible we don't belong to God anymore because things are so bad? They could have easily felt that. A lot of believers feel that at times when they go through hard times. And no, he chose you. There's a link here, and he's going to see you to the end. He's persevering you. You persevere because he's persevering you to the end. Easton ends with this. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
This is not a throwaway line, it sounds like it sometimes, because we're, we're just in sort of a greeting um, introduction here, really. Greeting, I guess, but... Peter says, may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. You got, you got a combined expressions here of Jew and Gentile world. Uh, Gentiles would say hello to one another and they would use a, a derivative of the word charis or grace. And, and Jews would use shalom or peace. Uh, but they were just kind of, for the Gentile, it was kind of like good luck. I hope all your deals work out. Uh, and for the Jews, they'd say peace about everything. I, I hope everything stays calm and trouble-free. That's really not how Paul's using it. No, Peter's using it here. For Peter, it isn't in the midst of no conflict. He's saying this in the midst of conflict or trouble. These believers are in trouble, just like believers today. And he says grace and peace. Peace is internal. It's the conscious awareness that God is in control. I'm at peace because I know God is in control. It's peace that's got some substance to it. It's not just a, a feeling because there's no conflicts around me. No, it's though the conflicts are there, I know God is in control. So it's not a throwaway term. And grace isn't just good luck. It's the understanding that, that God gives me grace. It's not the, just the grace to save me, but it's the grace to strengthen me. Grace to, to sustain me and to uphold me and to, uh, to help me understand his providence and understand his plans, understand his purposes, and that even with the hardships, knowing that God is behind those hardships, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim of anything. God's behind all of that. And so they got this, they understand who they are in Christ, chosen, foreknown, foreloved, foreplanned, no mistakes. No mistakes. And peace, Peter wants all this grace and peace to be multiplied in their voice, excuse me, in their lives. Multiplied is passive. I can't get this myself. I can't just run over and get this and say, oh, I'm going to get some peace and grace. How do I get peace and grace? No, this is something God produces internally in me. It's passive voice. We have to receive them. And the giver of grace and peace that was not mentioned in this verse is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see that? Throw yourself on the Godhead. Throw yourself on the Godhead. <laughs> so it reminds us of who God is. What a way to start. A lot of rich truths in that. Warren Wiersbe was a former pastor of Moody Church. I got this from somebody else, but I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, he was a Bible teacher on the radio a long time ago. He's written commentaries. Maybe some of you have used those. See if this is your testimony. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's as far as God the Father is concerned. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross and paid the penalty for all my sin. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, when he came to indwell me, I was saved one night in May 1945 when I heard the gospel and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Then it all came together. It all came together. Father, Son, and Spirit all came together. All the Godhead brought me to salvation. 
can't separate these ministries out, can you? You can't separate the Godhead. We rejoice in it, don't we? We rejoice in it. Folks, there's a lot of things going on in our world. We all know that. We see that every day. But this is one truth we can just rest in. This is one truth we can just find great comfort in. This is one truth we can just rejoice in and find our refuge in God. Thank you, God. Thank you for this time today. I pray, Father, if there's anybody here that does not know Jesus, they would cry out to him today. They would cry out to him today. Father, that they would not go another moment with the threat of divine wrath hanging over their heads. Because that is what the Bible says. If you do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you do not cry out to him for salvation, you will experience the wrath of God one day. And I pray, Lord, that you would open blind eyes and work in hearts this morning and bring men and women and young children and children to Christ. I pray you would do that work, God. I pray you would do that work because only you can do it. <laughs> only you can do it. My preaching and my efforts and the efforts of others in this room does not save anybody. Only you do that. You do that when your word is preached and we have preached your word today and we ask you to use your word to do your work in Jesus' name. Amen.